much. Um, I was going to just try to hide my reading glasses, but I'm like, who am I kidding? I, I, I need them, and so they're like an accessory at this point for me. Uh, one thing before I get started, um, a little snafu on the notes that I loaded on version for the Bible app. Uh, John pointed this out to me. Apparently, they're loaded on Wednesday, 10 a.m. service, which doesn't exist, uh, but it is. If you use the Bible app for notes, look for week 39, a 10 a.m. Wednesday service coming up, and the notes are there. So for those people that might try to come here, I have to remember to take that off and change that. But if you use the notes there, please, uh, you'll be able to find them there, no problem. And then for the rest of you, if you want to take old school notes, that's me. I use a journal. I um, I love being able to go back and look at what notes of things that maybe stood out to me during a service. So I'm going to give you, before we get started, because we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, I'm going to give you some information on parallel references and other scripture references in that, that parable that we're about to study. And I, I think that's a really important thing to be able to look at parallel references because sometimes you might get some additional information about the, you know, the story, the event that took place. Since we're looking at it, um, different writers, and they had different purposes that they were writing for. So they might highlight some things that are a little bit different. So if that is important to you, I'm just going to give that to you up front now so you're not searching for them later. So the parallel references are Matthew 21, 33 through 44, Luke 20, 9 through 18, Isaiah 5, um, and I'm just going to let you know, Isaiah 5 incorporates a lot of the vineyard imagery that's going to be in this parable. So reading that will show you that this is something that um, isn't the first time something like this has ever been heard for them. And then Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. So, okay, so now you've got that. You've got all the ammunition you need if you want to take a look at this later. If you brought your Bible, please uh, go ahead and uh, take yourself to Mark chapter 12. And we're going to be in the parable of the wicked tenants. Now, depending on the version, the translation that you use, it might have other names like evil farmers, the vineyard, you know, but a lot of them use wicked or evil. So I think you have kind of an idea before you even get started what, what the parable is going to be like, what we're going to be talking about. And I wanted to just um, give you a recap of last week so you know where we are as we move into this parable. So last week, the chief priests and the teachers of law were questioning Jesus's authority um, to say and do the things that he was doing. Because if you remember, he was reading them the riot act, right? Because uh, they had money changers in the temple and they were, you know, just using the, the temple as a, like a shortcut to other places. And uh, pretty much they were defiling the holiness, the sacredness of the temple. And um, the religious leaders are going to Jesus and saying, you know, who gives you the authority to say and do the things that you're doing? And Jesus, in typical fashion, you know, he throws out a question to them, you know, okay, so answer this question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? And he's talking about John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus, if we remember that. This is a no-win scenario for the religious leaders because if they say that the baptism was from heaven, 
then obviously that means Jesus has the authority. But if they say it's from men, the people are going to be super, super mad because John the Baptist was loved and seen as a prophet. So there really isn't a good answer for them in that way. And so they just say, we don't know. And they leave. And the la- you know, and right before they leave, Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So he goes straight from that into teaching a parable. And that's where we are right now. So Mark 12, 1 through 12. So first of all, it's important that you understand what a parable is. So some of the translations, like the NLT, doesn't even use the word parable. It uses stories. And that gives us a good insight right there because a parable is just a simple fictional story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. And it's important to keep in your mind the word simple because it's meant for us to be able to understand, right? Jesus is telling a story so that his followers will learn something. It wouldn't do any good if it was so complicated nobody could understand it. But we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go on. And so when we are studying parables, there are things that we can do to um, give us a greater success in not only understanding the things that might be fairly obvious, but understanding deeper things that are in there as well, things that are meant to be discovered, but that we can't just gloss over it and expect that we're going to get all that we could possibly get. So we want to be looking at uh, context, obviously, cultural background, Old Testament references, which I've given you guys some Old Testament references within the parable, patterns, who's the protagonist, our good guys, who's our antagonists, the bad guys, The meaning of the parable, sometimes Jesus tells a parable and he spells it out for them afterwards. He tells the story and then he says, this means, but sometimes he doesn't do that. And then finally, the application. What are we supposed to do with what we've just learned? And anybody who has listened to me speak for any period of time, you know I am passionate about studying the Bible. And so I love to share some of my method with you because some people, they're super comfortable with that. And for other people, they struggle or maybe they go, you know, have some ups and downs in there. And I think that anytime that you hear something where you're like, hey, I'm going to give that a try, you know, it's a helpful thing because more than anything, we want you to be able to read God's word and to be able to get the most out of it. So I'm going to read, since it's a story, I'm going to read the entire parable so we have the flow, and then we're going to go through the verses uh, and break them down. So Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So now while the whole story, the parable portion of that, those scriptures, is important, we want to focus, obviously, on the ending. So we're going to go through it, but we're going to spend a lot more time on the ending because that's usually where Jesus likes to throw a little twist in, get a little poke into the religious leaders. You know, he's, he's not afraid of making plain how he feels about the situation. And so whereas parables were used as a teaching tool for believers because they had the heart to understand what they were hearing, um, for people who were not believers or who were hard-hearted, they could be left kind of confused by what they heard and without full understanding of what the parable meant. And we're going to talk about that as well. So we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. So uh, verse 1, 12, uh, 12, 1, sorry. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent his servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So I don't think that this is probably super, you know, hard to, to put some pieces together, that the man represents God that the vineyard is Israel, the nation of Israel, and the promised land. It could be all of those things um, because he's, he's created this special place for them. He put a wall around it. Some scholarly opinions say that that is, just shows that that was protecting the vineyard, Israel, but others uh, had the opinion that that meant that they were set aside, that they had a wall around them because they were a set-aside people. And I think both of those really are legitimate. Um, they're legitimate interpretations of that. You dug a pit for the wine press. I love this part of it. If you dig a pit for a wine press, that tells me that the, the man, God, expects fully that there's going to be fruit from this endeavor, that these people are going to be successful and they're going to have something to put into that wine press and built a watchtower. And that would be very recognizable as protection. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So who would the farmers be? That would be the nation of Israel, right? So he, or the, and the religious leaders. So religious leaders in the specific then and the nation of Israel that did not accept Jesus in the general at that point. So he, he puts all of these things, God gives them all of these things for them to be successful. And then he gives it to them, and it says the man moves to another place. I see this as free will to steward those gifts however they saw fit, right? And I'm sure you know, we would think, oh my gosh, if somebody gave me all of that, I would be the best steward ever of, of taking care of it. And you would hope, you would hope that. And, then, and the man, God, doesn't stand over them and make them do anything in a certain way. He leaves and he goes someplace else and allows them the freedom 
to steward that vineyard as they see fit. And at the harvest time, which would be not a surprise to them at the harvest time that he sends somebody to the tenants to gather some of the fruit from the vineyard. When they would do this in, in literal terms, right, to rent a vineyard, some of the fruit from that would be essentially some of the rent. That's part of how they would pay for having that land. So it is no surprise. It wouldn't be anything uh, that would be weird. Why would he be coming to get some of that fruit? That would be recognizable again to send somebody to collect some of that fruit of the vineyard. It's just like when God sets us up and gives us everything that we need, there should be some fruit that comes of that. And he's involved with that fruit because he's the one that gifted us to begin with. So then when we move to verses um, three through five, but they seized him, this is the servant, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. So if you know what group of people the servants represent, just yell that out to me. Who do the servants represent? Prophets, exactly. So throughout the Bible, we have story after story where the prophets have gone to the people. And, you know, in this story, they're saying collect fruit. And that might be a little bit of of imagery that might be hard to reconcile. But think in your mind, when the prophets came to the people, I know it wasn't usually like, good job, two thumbs up, that kind of stuff, right? A lot of it was words of correction, words of warning, because they were going down a bad road and God sent someone to them to help get them back on the right road. Sometimes that happened and sometimes that didn't. And when it didn't happen, which was quite often, I'm pretty sure this is where the saying, don't kill the messenger, comes from, because they did. They would, would beat them, they treated them horribly. And in this context, this time frame that we're teaching on right now in Mark, The death of John the Baptist, the murder of John the Baptist, would have been very fresh in their minds. So we move to verses 6 through 8. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So the son who is the heir, Jesus, very good. This is one of the things in the women's Bible study. We, our thing is, is like, if there's a question that you're not 100% sure of the answer, say Jesus, and most of the time, (laughs) most of the time, that's the answer, right? And it, it, it bears true. This, this is one of those times. Jesus, he, that's the answer. And so, so Jesus is the son, the heir, that he goes now, right? The ultimate authority, right? And he's also, you might notice, foretelling once again, as he has throughout the book of Mark and all the gospels, foretelling what's going to happen to him, foretelling about his death. And so he sends that God sends him 
and they don't respect him. And this really highlights in these, these couple of verses here how jealous the religious leaders were of Jesus. You know, when they talk about kill him and the inheritance will be ours, the religious leaders didn't have anything to offer. Jesus is the only one that had or has anything to offer. And they were so jealous of how that kind of was messing up their, um, their story of how they thought things should be, their laws that they were followers of and how they tried to control everything around them, thinking that killing the heir would make that inheritance theirs. In verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and, give, uh, come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. First of all, if you have been traveling with Jesus all this time, have you ever heard Jesus say anything like, he's going to kill those other tenants? And that would be just one of those things where I'd be like, oops, you know, that just seems really super harsh um, given how amazing Jesus was trying to teach people about loving each other well. But there's a point at which you have to make sure people know the reality of what will happen. And this is that. that. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What will God do? He will come and kill those tenants, those, those people who have rejected Jesus, and give the vineyard to others. So here is some really good news. Who are the others? Who are the other tenants? Oh, it's the Gentiles, right? And this would have been some really, really inflammatory things for um, the religious leaders or the Jewish people in general to hear at this time. Um, they rejected him, and Jesus is saying they're going to lose their chance of the benefits of the vineyard and that that, pen that benefit is going to be passed, at least for now, because we know the ultimate idea is not that he wants them to be lost. He wants them to be on the same page, right? He wants them to, because they're his people. He wants them there. But for now, that's not what's going to happen. It'll be given to the Gentiles because the Gentiles are accepting him. And then Jesus says in verses 10 through 11, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So verses 10 and 11 where it talks about the stone, that's a direct scripture reference to Psalm 118, 22 through 23. And interestingly enough, when you look at the different translations, some of the older translations use the word capstone instead of cornerstone. As a matter of fact, the older NIV uses capstone, newer NIV uses cornerstone. And so I did a little study into that. Um, and in the Greek and Hebrew, since we're looking at the Greek for Mark and the Hebrew for the Psalm reference, the two words that make that up, and I'm not going to try to pronounce them, so you can look that up if you want to, are of corner and chief corner. So we're, we're looking at, or I'm sorry, chief, <laughs> here come the glasses again, oh my goodness, chief and of corner. Okay, 
So chief would make me think of the capstone part. That's the finishing of the building. That's everything that's at the top, the crowning achievement. But then of corner, you can see where cornerstone would come in. Cornerstone could be foundational, but it could also be what happens at the end, putting those two walls together. And they said often the cornerstone would have ceremonial elements, such as the, the name of the architect, details about when the project was finished. Um, so really, regardless of what your translation says, Jesus is both the cornerstone and the capstone. He is everything in this scenario, quite honestly. And so the biggest thing is just to remember that he is this building. He is this building. He is everything. He is the foundation. He is the crowning glory of this building. He is the first and the last. And then we move to verse 12, the last verse in this section of scripture that we're talking about today. And it says, then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. And I love the fact that they're afraid of the crowd. They're not even afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of the crowd and what the crowd's going to do. So parables were meant to have an application for the original audience, right? Because why would Jesus tell the story if it wasn't meant for them as well? And it's also got an application for us. So we're going to think, first of all, let's think about the application for them. So Jesus is setting the stage for the predicament of the religious leaders and the Jewish people. And we've studied in the past, and we've studied quite a bit in the women's study as well, how Jesus will use the tactic of trying to rile up and build some jealousy within the Jewish people at the idea of the Gentiles getting in on their deal, right? They don't like that. Right now, in this, in this time especially, they didn't want to share any of their inheritance, any of their promise. They didn't want to share their status or their prime rental property. <laughs> you know, if we're thinking about the parable with the vineyard, they don't want it to go to someone else. So when Jesus is teaching this parable, it's for those who have ears to hear. They would recognize what the parable meant, what it stood for. They'd be able to make those comparisons that the man is God and that the tenants are the religious leaders and the unbelieving Jewish nation. But let's look at Matthew 13, 11 through 17. This is where Jesus is also talking in parables, and the disciples ask him, why? Right? If it's me, I'm like, why, Jesus, why parables? Right? Um, I would love to say I love parables, but I do not. I would just like him to tell me what he wants to tell me and, and leave it at that. But Jesus gives them a reason at this time. right? So he replied, and this is the scripture in Matthew, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and in turn, I would heal them. 
but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So think of that verse 12. The priests, they're mad. They know that this doesn't show them in an honorable light or a good light, but they don't know how to do something or how to arrest Jesus without causing more ruckus, and so they just take off. So maybe in their heads, the religious leaders, they got that piece of it. You know, they're like, ugh, he's talking about us, I know it. And it made them mad, right? But they don't make the transition to changing their way of thinking or at least even considering the truth that Jesus is teaching. So they didn't have the eyes to see it, the ears to hear it, or the heart to embrace it. This is the difference between wanting the truth and wanting your position to be validated. And that is something that we deal with in so many areas of our lives. And so we have to just retrain ourselves to want the truth, even if it doesn't line up with something that we have previously believed. That's why we go to the Holy Spirit and we're like, Holy Spirit, I want to know the truth. Guide me so I recognize the truth so that I can recognize a lie. So then we move on to the application for us. What's the application for for them? So that was it. You know, it's kind of the same for the disciples and us, but for the religious leaders, it was, they should have been looking for the truth, and they didn't. For us, number one, have we accepted Jesus? And once we've taken that enormous step, we can apply then by being thankful, being obedient, welcoming Jesus in and revering him for who he is, we should be producing fruit with what God has given us and give to him what belongs to him, the glory. So that landowner going there to gather some of that fruit, that's God coming up to us and just asking to be given the glory, the credit for what he has gifted us with. Why? So that others will want the same. Remember when I mentioned parallel accounts at the beginning? So when I read the parallel accounts to this, they're pretty, very similar, except the other two, Matthew and Luke, each have a verse that the the Mark version doesn't have. And I can't tell you why the Mark version doesn't have it, but this verse really struck me. So we're going to end as far as scripture goes, on Luke 20, verse 18, and I think we have this perfect. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, this is the ultimate application. Fall on the stone or be crushed by it. Some scholars look at this in a very negative way. They're like, you know, it's... it's the, you know, where we stumble and we, and we mess this up and we mess this up. And, but man, I didn't look at it at that way at all. I, I want you guys to think of that verse. And Jesus is the stone, right? The stone that's either going to break you to pieces or crush you. But what if we thought in our minds that when we look at that verse, that when we stumble on that stone, if we are broken to pieces by our sin, 
if we have repentant and contrite hearts, if we come to faith, falling on Jesus is how we are made whole. It is how we are healed. And it is how we are saved. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, so worship team, you can come up. We're going to go ahead and we're going to take communion. So I would like very much for you guys as we go into communion to think about what God has gifted you with that should be bearing fruit. And maybe you've set it aside for this time being, right? And so many things happen in our lives. But if God's been prompting you, if the Holy Spirit has been prompting you about something he has gifted you with, that should be bearing fruit in your life. And when something bear fruit, bears fruit in your life, you, you get the benefit of it as well. You, people around you, the Lord. So it shouldn't be something that we're afraid of leaning into. It can be daunting for sure. But if the Holy Spirit is leading you there, if God has gifted it to you, then there is something there for all of us. So Bob and I are going to be down here. We're going to have wine, and we have bread and gluten-free crackers. We have a self-serve station over here with grape juice. As you feel led, you know, you can be praying about that. As you feel led, come up, take communion, and just thank God for the gifts he has given you, and, and just tell him and, that you want to be a good steward and ask him for the steps on how to do that. Amen, folks. Thank you.